Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. Artificial intelligence is this science, I guess, or study that the goal of it is to build intelligence that mimics various aspects of human intelligence. It could be cognitive intelligence, social intelligence, natural language processing. There's many aspects of it, but, but the idea is to replicate or even exceed human intelligence. You know, the most intelligent people are the ones who have emotional intelligence and are really kind of attuned to what other people feel and can empathize and can build that into their decision making. We all know that from our own personal and professional lives, right? I wanted to, to kind of solve that problem. I wanted to build a machine that can understand human emotions just the way people do. do, do. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is Rana El Kayubi. Rana El Kayubi. I did it. Okay, so who is Rana? Rana is a passionate advocate for humanizing technology in places like AI. So instead of having a robot be a robot, she's teaching emotional intelligence to robots or programming them. So she's been recognized on Fortune Magazine's 40 Under 40 as one of Forbes Magazine's top 50 women in tech. She is a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader and a newly minted Young President's Organization member. She co-hosted the PBS series Nova Wonders and appears in the YouTube original series The Age of AI, hosted by Robert Downey Jr. She has a PhD from the University of Cambridge and she did her post-doctoral research at MIT. Okay? Okay? Do we need to say anything else? Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with, one more time, Rana L. Kalubi. Rana L. Kalubi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Rob. So, I'm just I'm just impressed that I was able to do that. I just wanted to I wanted to show off a little bit of my Egyptian. I think it's it is Egyptian, yeah. It is, and I'm impressed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm super excited to have you on the show today because we're gonna dig into AI, we're gonna dig into emotions. People rarely put those two things together, AI and emotions, but you did, and we're gonna talk about all of that stuff. But before we do. 
I want to, I think it's a good idea for us to set the stage a little bit about where you came from. So let's, because I think it's, people really can understand a person when they know sort of like where they came from, you know? So let's, let's talk a little bit about growing up in Egypt and maybe you could paint uh, a picture of what it was like there and, you know, how things have changed now that you're in the U.S. And, you know, for example, there was a time in your life where you wore a hijab and, and, and I don't see one on you now. So there's a a difference. So maybe you can sort of like walk me through a little bit of that. Yeah. So I was born in Cairo. Um, I'm Egyptian, originally Egyptian, um, but my parents worked in and around the Middle East. So both my parents are technologists. They actually, it's a funny story. It's a cute story. My dad taught a programming language that is now pretty much obsolete. And my mom in the 70s, right, she decided to take this, you know, class after afternoon class to learn programming. She must have been one of the first women to take on, you know, a, a take, take, take on a tech career in, in the Middle East. And so she met my dad in this class and, you know, they hit it off and ended up getting married. So I grew up around technology and both my parents are very education advocates, I guess. I have two younger sisters. And one of my earliest memories, I remember my uncle challenging my dad on why he was spending so much energy around our education. So, you know, my, my parents invested a lot in our education, both in classroom and at school, but also to travel around the world and experience different cultures. And I remember my uncle saying, you know, why don't, they're girls, right? Why don't you invest in like real estate or like whatever? And my dad was adamant that he invests in our education. And I really credit my parents for that. I think it's the biggest investment they've done for us. And I'm so grateful. But that was the kind of cultural norms, right, within which uh, I, I grew up. So on the one hand, my parents were like, you go girl, like we support you. But on the other hand, there were a lot of cultural norms and restrictions that I had to abide for, abide by. Uh, for example, I was not allowed to date until after college. <laughs> so that was, you know. Are you going to um, raise your kids the same way where you say to your, your, your kids like, hey, I didn't date. You're not dating. Oh, goodness. We're going right right into it, huh? <laughs> it is really interesting because my daughter is now 17, almost 18. And we had that conversation when she was a freshman in high school. And I said, you know what? You're not allowed to date. And she was like, but mom, like we're in the U.S. now. And da 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 and, and, uh, and so there are some things in my brain that are just hardwired, these cultural norms. And they're hard to, you know, they're hard to totally... Um, I guess upgrade. <laughs> well, what's what's the answer? Are they dating or are they not dating? Who wins? <laughs> she is not. She's not. She. You know what? There was one instance when she really wanted to date, and I said, "Okay, I'm not sure about this. Let me crowdsource the world." So I put it on my Facebook and talked to all my friends. And by the time I had like basically everybody said let her date, but by the time I had compiled all of that data, she had moved on. Okay, got it. So when when for the mom? She's allowed to date in college. She's allowed to date in college. That's the compromise. Okay. You know, it's funny how these first and first and second generation things evolve. You know, but you want to there's but you look there's a lot of things that you know your mom and dad had that were you know in your life for a very specific reason. You know, to protect you and allow you to do you know. So I I get it. You know. Okay. So this show is about helping people um, get their life in a bit more balance and. I think an area of your life I'm 
I want to ask you about is, can you kind of take me back to that time in your life where you were spending two weeks in Boston and two weeks in Cairo, you know, going back and forth, and we'll get into what you were doing later about why you had to go back and forth. But like, I can imagine that that had to play havoc on your personal life, play havoc on your health. Talk to me about that time in your life. I have definitely had a period in my life where I did not prioritize self-care. And so, so that was a period in my life where we were starting the company. I was commuting back and forth between Cairo and Boston and literally spending all my time right jet lagged and 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 on a flight, right? And that was a, it was energizing. Like I'm a very driven person, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are too. Yeah. So on the one hand, it was really energizing, a lot of adrenaline. I felt like I was being productive, but at the same time, it was out of whack. I was not spending quality time with my family. So when I was back in Cairo with my husband at the time, who's now my ex and my two kids, I just wasn't present, right? I wasn't present. And of course, I didn't prioritize sleep. I didn't prioritize eating well. I had no time to exercise in my mind, right? And and I just... You know, that that's not a good place to be long-term. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint, especially when you're a founder and entrepreneur. I've, I've now... I, tr- I still struggle with that, to be honest. But I'm a lot more thoughtful and intentional about how I spend my time. And in fact, the company, our calendars are, are, are public you know, with the team. And I have Zo- my Zumba class. I do Zumba a few times a week. And it's on my calendar. It's during the workday. Nobody's allowed to schedule a meeting on top of it. And I tell them like, a, a, you know, Zumba makes me happy and you want the CEO to be happy. Do you, uh, do you wear the thing with the, uh, you know, the, no, the, I don't you know, know, I don't. <laughs> I, I, uh, I work out at the, uh, the gym when it's, when it's not COVID and they do a Zumba class at the time I work out. And, and you know, sometimes I'm, I'm peeking in there. It looks like, looks, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to do it anytime soon, but it looks like a lot of fun for sure. So it, I, it's fun. It's fun. I, I get it. So, Okay. You know, I tell you what's interesting. What popped in my mind when you said that is I started wearing this whoop. Have you have you seen a whoop? Yeah, I, I, I actually, my whoop is lying around, so I love it. So it's like you get real-time feedback on the shit show that is your life if you're not careful. And mm-hmm. I've been I've been obsessed with HRV, you know, trying to like figure out how to make this thing better. And it's unbelievable. I mean, if I go out, you know, and I have a couple of Negronis uh, at a bar, I mean, the next day it's it crashes, you know. And so finding this balance between like, you know, that sort of like central nervous system, that sympathetic and that parasympathetic and putting it together is not so easy. So I love having this thing because it keeps me uh, keeps me in line. Another can I add on to that? Because this is an example where the will has been really helpful. I typically try to sleep well, but sometimes I'll wake up at three in the morning with this thought and I, okay, I have to like think about this plan or roadmap or email this customer at three, right? Can yep. I wait till seven? That's, a, that's the most common wake up time, by the way. Which is crazy. And now I can see it on my whoop, right? Yep. So my, it's like, it's like, it's almost like I'm now held accountable because I can see it and, and it impacts, you know, it impact, what do they call it? The uh, restoration, restorative. The recovery, yeah. Recovery, yeah. I um I had the same problem, particularly during COVID. I think I think my like anxiety was kicking up because it was like I felt like I was just boxed in. You know, I'm in California, I'm in LA, and everything is like my I have a kindergartner and she's never been to kindergarten. Like everything is still shut down. I was getting up at three o'clock in the morning over and over again. The only thing that helped me was doing TM, transcendental meditation. 
Really? 20 minutes twice a day. You have to do a four-day class. Um, it's 90 minutes. It, don't let the four days fool you because it's it's 90 minutes each day. But in a way, it's kind of good because it's COVID. They were forced to do Zoom. So you only have to do one in person and three. 20 minutes twice a day, my HRV went through the ceiling and never woke up again. Like after the first day, I've never missed a day. And everybody, like Howard Stern does it, Seinfeld does it, Ellen DeGeneres, like it is a celebrity thing. It's not woo-woo, it's not weird, it's very scientific, it's very easy. You gotta take the class to understand it, but I'm telling you, you, you love it. You are going to have to point me, uh, send me some pointers, but I, I will try it. Absolutely. TM.org is the uh, first place to start. So I think a good uh, jumping off point here will be to take you back to the uh, the 90s in Cairo when you were working on your master's and your PhD. Why did you decide to do your thesis on human emotions and computers of, of all things? So I've always been really fascinated by how technology changes the way we connect and communicate as humans. I told you my parents were technologists, so we grew up around a lot of gadgets at home. And it always struck me that it brought our family together, right? Like we would sit around an Atari gaming console, and but it brought me and my sisters together. And it was an opportunity to socialize and connect in new and different ways. So that always stayed with me. When I studied computer science as an undergrad, I was most interested in that human-machine interface, that friction at the time you interact with with the device. And I projected that technology is going to become more and more ubiquitous over time and so ingrained in our everyday lives. So I wanted to, I guess I wanted to play a role in how we design and deploy these types of technologies. I also am, as you can tell over video, I'm a very expressive human being. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I, I kind of recognize that technology is very is is completely oblivious to our nonverbal communication, which is the majority of how we communicate. Facial expressions, hand gestures, vocal intonations, body posture. And I wanted I wanted to to kind of solve that problem. I wanted to build a machine that can understand human emotions just the way people do. And I kind of projected that that would not only transform human machine interaction, but fundamentally reimagine human machine connect human to human connections and that that you know all right so my the the neurons in my brain are exploding right now because i i'm going down 4000 paths in my head and i'm going to try and just choose a lane so let's let's start off with some basic definitions what is artificial intelligence artificial intelligence is this science i guess or study that the goal of it is to build intelligence that mimics various aspects of human intelligence. It could be cognitive intelligence, social intelligence, natural language processing. There's many aspects of it. But, but the idea is to replicate or even exceed human intelligence. Okay. What's the difference between EQ and IQ? Yeah. So IQ is your cognitive intelligence. It's your executive functioning, uh, your, your language abilities. Your EQ is your emotional intelligence. And this is research that we didn't do. It's like almost 60 or 70 years old now. We know that people who have higher EQs, higher emotional quotients, tend to do better in life. They're more persuasive. They're better leaders. They're more trustworthy. They even ha- live healthier and, ha- and longer lives, right? So we know that you know the most intelligent people are the ones who have emotional intelligence and are really kind of attuned to what other people feel and can empathize and can build that into their decision making 
Um, we all know that from our own personal and professional lives, right? But in technology, AI has a lot of IQ. Everybody's focused on the IQ of Alexa and can Alexa understand you? Da, da, da. But nobody's really focused on the emotional abilities of technology. You know what's interesting? I, what, what as you're describing this, I got I got I'm not a political guy, but I got an image in my mind of Al Gore IQ, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bill Clinton EQ. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like totally. yeah. the, the difference in the persuasiveness that people will see from that. So, okay. So now we understand those basic definitions. How does technology become clued in to our emotions and how we communicate as humans? Yeah. So let's dissect how do humans communicate, right? About only 10% of how we communicate is in the actual choice of words we use. 90% is nonverbal. And it's split equally between your face, your body language, and your vocal intonations. Like how fast are you speaking? How much energy is in your voice? For the most part, the way we think about technology today is very text-based, right? It's 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 very based on analyzing the emails you send or your Slack messages, your text messages. The 90% of how we communicate is kind of, it just disappears into cyberspace. It has changed a little bit over the last year because we do a lot more video, but we're still unable to quantify, you know, these video connections. And I'll give you an example. My my book launched last April. So so I had to pivot from doing an actual book tour to a virtual book tour. And I ended up doing a lot of these like Zoom, Zoom conversations or Zoom fireside chats. And often the setup is I'm speaking to a host, right? Or I'm presenting to an audience and I can't see the audience. It's got to be killing you. It's killing. It's, it's, it's painful because yeah. I'm used to riffing off of the energy of the folks in the audience and you adapt and you personalize the message, but you're doing it like you're emotionally blind. And, and that's what technology is like. Technology is emotion blind. Okay. So you mentioned that 90% of our communication with people is nonverbal, but computers are not currently built for that. Why do you think that nobody has really brought that issue to the surface? A, a couple of factors. First of all, I remember when I first started doing this, you know, 20 years ago. And then when I spun out of MIT 10 years ago, emotion was like a taboo, right? So in fact, when we were raising money from, you know, in the Bay Area from the, from VCs, we avoided using the word emotion in our pitch deck. We called it the E-words um, because... Because we got a lot of pushback, like why emotions? Does it really matter? Thankfully, there's now recognition that our emotions influence every aspect of our lives in terms of how we make decisions, how we connect with others, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that was a bucket. That was kind of one factor. The other factor is just computation. You know, our cameras 20 years ago were way less sophisticated. Now, ca- cameras are now ubiquitous. Every device has a, you know, has a camera on it. Um, so the core technology is more available and you can do a lot more with it. So that that's another factor. So something else popped in my head. And this, if in any way this comes across as, as douchey, please forgive my douchebaggery because I don't mean it to sound that way. But like if I met you in a bar and I found out that you had your master's, your PhD, and you graduated from MIT... I, I I would be so blown away by the level of femininity that you have considering that sort of like environment. And in no way is that to me 
insulting or anything other than it strikes me as so interesting how you are in such a techie world and yet you're so feminine is has 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 that been intentional or has anybody else noticed that or am i just being weird no 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 you're not at all I, but i actually think it's it's like a superpower because i i, I mean i'm hugely passionate about getting more girls into into technology because it's an amazing career. Yeah. But 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 tech has a really awful brand, right? Like you think tech and you think all of these like guys with hoodies and like or the women right. like and, yeah. and I and I feel like I have an opportunity to rebrand what technology can be about. Yeah, you can be super geek. I mean I'm really geeky and I'm very analytical and I'm a nerd. But like, I'm a hip nerd and I like that. <laughs> I could not, I, I, this is a true story. When I was doing the research on you, I kept having to make sure that the picture I have of you was actually in alignment. I was convinced that these were two different people and that I was wrong. Like it did, like I could not put the two and two together um, because you're so unique. I mean, you really are a unicorn in this area. Okay, I got that out. That makes dating really tough. <laughs> Because I, that was my next thing. I was going to say, you know, forget about the the credentials that you have. You know, look, as a man, women, women typically, and again, I'm generalizing, so please don't send me emails. Um, women typically, at some point in the conversation, I will hear, like if I come home to my wife and I tell my wife, hey, I met this girl, she's going to ask me, how old is she? It's just It just comes up every freaking time. And if she goes out and she comes home at the end of the day and she says, hey, I was talking to this guy I met at the shoe store. I'm going to, well, the shoe store is a bad example. I'm talking to this guy I met today. I'm going to ask her, what does he do for a living? Right. Because, right. because I want to know that I, that I got a bigger, you know what, than, than he does. And she wants to know that, you know, that she's, you know, younger and prettier than, she, you know what I mean? And so there's that thing. And when, when somebody has the credentials that you have, it's a little bit of a mind fuck for a guy to go like, whoa, I like, there's a lot, to, like I can like super feminine and MIT, like, I don't know which, I don't know, like it's, it's a mind bender. Like you don't know which one to go with. So I could imagine that that is, that that's a bit of a challenge. So, but, but here's what's interesting about this for me. What's interesting is the lane that you funneled it in, because actually it just hit me. The lane that you funneled it in is precisely who you are. So that's what's so fascinating. All right, so let's let's dig into that. Could you explain the analyzing of um, facial expressions in real time? For example, I watched this show. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Years ago, it was called Lie to Me. Have you ever heard of that show? Okay. Um, and it was sort of based on these micro expressions that people have. Can you explain to people who don't know what we're talking about, what micro expressions are and how they could you know, read, quote unquote, somebody's, expressions in a millisecond. What, what is this all about? So the science of facial expressions has been around for almost 200 years now. But the concept is there are about 45 facial muscles that control what type of expressions we do. And in the 70s, um, this guy, Paul Ekman, and his team published the facial action coding system. So essentially, they took every facial muscle and they mapped it to a code. So when you smile, that, that's the zygomatics muscle, and that's action unit 12. And if you do a brow furrow, which if you do a lot, you eat Botox, <laughs> uh, that's action unit four. It's the corrugator muscle. So he created this um, system and to become a certified face, 
face reader. You have to take about 100 hours of training and then you take a test. You read people's expressions and then you become a certified fax coder. Um, very laborious process, very time intensive. It, it kind of takes you about five minutes to code one minute of video because you have to play it in slow motion and you have to see, ooh, you just raised your eyebrows or you're nodding your head, which you're doing right now. Don't don't feel over. Uh, <laughs> oh, how, how am I how am I supposed to not be self conscious? I feel like I want to put right? a, ba- a bag over my head. That's another problem with dating you. Can you imagine? <laughs> like you're like, hold on a second. Let me rewind the videotape. I nah, I think I saw snarl. Oh, no, I switched it right. <laughs> but there's but there's about you know again these forty five or so action units that are the building blocks of how we express ourselves, and then you can combine them in thousands of different combinations. Like I could smile and do an eyebrow raise and it would be a different expression than if I grimaced, right? Like, so there's thousands and thousands of these combinations. Um, So that's the science of it. And it's really fascinating. What we've done is we've used machine learning and deep learning and computer vision and a ton of data to train these algorithms automatically, right? So that the next time, you know, if when it sees you, it's like, oh, Rob's nodding his head or he's smiling or smirking. So that's that's the high level kind of approach. All right. So got to dig into this a little bit deeper. Um, have you seen any of the the whoever the I, I, I'm assuming that the guy you mentioned is who the lie to me television show was modeled after? Okay. So have you ever seen him interviewed on sixty Minutes? Did you happen to catch that piece? I have not. I've met the, him. A- few times. He's amazing, but I've never seen that interview. Okay. He was interviewed on, uh, on 60 minutes. Um, and so was, and I may be, I may be confusing the two. So it's either one or the other. So was John Gottman, um, the marriage oh. researcher guy. Yeah, okay. Did nice you, guy. did you catch that 60 minutes interview he did? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. It was, it was fascinating. So um, it's either one or both. I can't remember which one, but here's what I, here's what I saw. I saw that they were having a conversation and the guy said to him, did you see what just happened um, with his nose? And the reporter, 60 minute reporter looks and goes, no, I didn't. He goes, well, let me, let me back it up and we'll do slow motion. And all of a sudden you see this snarl in his nose that was like, you couldn't like, if you watched it back 10 times, you wouldn't have caught it. But it was this, this snarl that was so crazy obvious when it was slowed down. Okay. So my, my first question is, are these ticks, I'm going to call them, I don't know what they're called, micro-expression. Are these, okay. Are these micro-expressions consistent throughout people to correspond with emotions? In other words, if I'm, you know, if I'm your husband and, you know, for the 15,000th time, you're saying the thing that pisses me off and I do the micro expression, that little snarl for every other husband out there in the world, would they also do that same snarl? (laughs) Well, the thing is people express emotions in different ways, right? So I I always say it's not a one-to-one mapping. There are a variety of expressions to express contempt and there are, for contempt, there are different ways of expressing it, right? Like, like so, so it depends on context. It depends on the personality. And this is where the holy grail of all of this is that the device or the phone or your machine or Alexa or your car, whatever, gets to know you really well. 
because right now where we're at as an industry, we have just one generic model that we run on everybody in the world. We have a little bit of cultural understanding. So we've incorporated gender differences, cultural differences, but it's not down to the individual. So ultimately we wanted to know who you are and how you express your emotion, because there are of course, you know, interpersonal differences in terms of how, how people decide to express their emotion, when they decide to express their emotion. Some people amplify their emotions. Some people dampen it or mask it. So um, it's a it's a complex problem. And I I, I kind of say where the industry's at is like I liken it to a toddler. Like a to- like your kindergartner probably has you know a repertoire of emotion understanding, but it's a limited one. Like yep. he or she is it is she, it a he right. or she? she. Um, so she can probably like recognize you know joy and anger and surprise, but not like pride, jealousy. Right. right, like right. these more complex emotions are going to be harder for her. So if they're, if, if they're one-to-one, then how do you create something that's one-to-many? Yeah, so the one-to-one version of this is when, is when you see a smile, it equals happy and happy equals smile, which is not the case, right? There are, I mean, um, uh, uh, Tyra Banks, right? She has this like, a hundred different ways to smile and every different smile has a different meaning, right? Yeah, you can, yeah. Uh, you, you have a sad smile, a flirty smile, a happy smile, uh, you, right? Like there's a yeah, ton of them. Yeah. A social smile. Um, so, so you cannot just take the super naive approach that a smile means that you're happy. That that actually is hurting the industry. So, so it's important to just acknowledge that and also incorporate other signals, right? Like I might be smiling, but but what what am I saying and how am I saying it? Like incorporate other nonverbal signals into how you decide what a person's feeling, and that's again where the industry's headed. Why do we do these micro expressions and why are they, do we, do we do them naturally, but then we unconsciously hide them, which is why they're so fast? So the, the specific definition of a micro expression is that both it's nuanced, it's like subtle and nuanced, but it's also super fast. As you said, there's a number of factors when people lie, you tend to see more of these micro expressions because you're trying to mask them. But oftentimes, you you know, this snarl, like, I bet you this person didn't really think about it. It was just a very no. subconscious, right? Yes. Oh, absolutely. So we're hardwired to do these things. Do we know why? Oh, I, I mean, I, I you go back to the neuroscience, like the the how our brain is wired to express these uh, the, these signals, kind of from a social from a social evolution perspective. See, I think you are. I think you are on the cutting edge of technology because when you think about this, like you know, you had said in some of the research, you're like, you know, your laptop doesn't has no emotion, right? But I am starting to feel a little bit of emotion from Alexa, like a little bit. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sensing that she's sort of like understanding me a little bit more. If I say something, like I feel like if you know, if I, if I said something that would be insulting to her, that I might get a little bit of a snarkier answer back from her or uh-huh. a sad. Uh-huh. Like, like they're programming it for emotion. It's not just robotic, like it once was. Like I'm, I'm starting to see that happening. But when I think about the work that you do, and I think about this work extrapolated out, like, um, forgive this, um, but like the porn industry right now with COVID is going through the roof. 
Like it's insanity what the numbers are. I just did a, a, an interview with somebody about this. And I'm curious to know, like right now, you know, you watch a video, you watch a, a porn video or something and it, it's just, it's static, right? You get the idea. It's, it, but as we move on, dating and things like porn and other things are going to sense you and they're going to sense what you want. And the thought of where we're going in this, in this industry, there's a part of it that feels freaked out by it. Like how apocalyptic is this going to be? Are we going to have the zombies taking over the world? And another part of it is, this is exciting. Like this is like, you know, somebody can look in my pupil and assess pupillary dilation or constriction and what that means. So where do you think we're going with this? Like if you were to to look out 10 years from now, what, what are you seeing in these disparate yeah. categories? Yeah. So, so first of all, I do want to acknowledge that there is potential for abuse and because this is very powerful data and very personal data. So I'll come back to that in a second, but I'll start first with where this can go from impacting humans, right? One of the very first applications that I explored, which was the project that brought me over to MIT, um, was the applications of this technology with autism. So individuals on the autism spectrum struggle with understanding people's emotions and social cues. Well, we built a device way back before Google Glass existed that was a set of pair of glasses with a little camera embedded in it. And it gave you know, the wearer real-time feedback on the expressions and emotions of people they were interacting with. And we started to see a lot of positive outcomes with the autistic population that we, you know, tried this technology on. And, and now we're partnered with a company that does, in fact, use Google Glass integrated with our technology. And they're in about 400 different homes. So that's, you know, there's applications in autism, tons of applications in mental health. We know that there are facial and vocal biomarkers of depression, stress, anxiety, even suicidal intent. Can you imagine if this was integrated into, you know, platforms that we use every day, like an Alexa, or even, you know, we're sitting in front of, you know, these video conferencing platforms, you know, eight hours a day. Well, that's an opportunity to get a sense of a person's emotional well-being. It's like the yeah. equivalent of whoop, right? But for, for your emotions. You know, it's interesting. I, I did an interview, another interview with a guy who basically took the whoop technology and he put it into a bed. And it was, it's really fascinating because he said, you know, for the last hundred years, we've been sleeping on the same stupid piece of foam and nobody has tried to make it smart. And, you know, so my bed now uh, vibrates and wakes uh, to wake me up in the morning. And I just got a message from my bed a minute ago, said your HRV dropped last night. So, which I think is, is fascinating, right? It's how the bed's talking to us, but nobody's doing what you're doing, which is looking at the emotional component. Everybody's drawing data, but nobody's drawing data based on emotion. So you, your company, Affectiva, um, has the essence of the word emotion, but you don't directly say it. Why is that? Um, so affect is a synonym for the word emotion. And when we started the company, my co-founder is an MIT professor called Rosalind Picard, and she actually started the field of affective computing. But when we spun out, we were picking a name for the company. And again, we didn't want it to be too feminine. We didn't want it to have the word emotion in it. And so we used affect or affectiva, which is a less feminine version of the word. And if you look at our early pitch decks, we literally avoided 
the word emotion also. We talk about valence, which is how positive or negative you are feeling. Um, arousal, which is how excited you are, but never really the word emotion. When I stepped into CEO, um, I, I was the CTO and then I took over as CEO about four and a half years ago now. Um, I rebranded the company and we actually picked hot pink as our brand color. And I was like, you know, whatever, I'm going to own this and I'm going to like, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, un- you're going to be unapologetic about it and you're going you're gonna to move into, yeah, I, I, I got it. How do you, how are you enjoying this startup process? Is it, you know, there's, there's this, the scientist side of you and then there's the marketing and business side of you. Um, how has that process been for you? You know, the honest answer is that it's been and continues to be an emotional roller coaster. And I made a decision a few years ago to just be very open about that because when people look at our social media, you know, these press releases and we've raised money and it's like, you know, we're crushing it. It's tough, right? And there are days where, yes, you feel like you're on top of the world, but the very next day you lose a contract, you, you, you get a no from a potential investor and, you, and, and it's an existential threat. And I think it's important to be honest about that. The thing I think that, that, that drives me first is this conviction that we're on a mission to humanize technology and, and I, I, I want to see that through. Um, but the other piece of it, which I take a lot of pride in, is just seeing members of my team and kind of our broader ecosystem be inspired by the work we do and develop professionally and personally. I, I, I take that very personally and it, I draw a lot of energy from it. For sure. You said you have two daughters? Daughter and a son. A daughter and a son. Okay. What do they think? How old are they? Um, so Jenna is uh, 17 and Adam is 12. Oh, you're in it. Okay, cool. Um, I have a 23-year-old and a six-year-old. You, can you imagine? Oh, first, wow. First wife and second wife, but that's another conversation. So <laughs> it's what happens when you marry a younger woman. They want kids. Um, I'll be 55 this year. So I'm, you know, I, 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 I've, been, I've, been down, I've been down the road uh, for sure. What do they think about the kind of work that uh, you're doing? Um, a, they've been part and parcel of it, like from the get-go. Like I remember taking my son in his car seat uh, to our investor pitches, literally wow. because my babysitter fell through, and I was like, "Well, it took months to schedule this investor meeting. Guess what? You're coming with me." <laughs> so I've done that before. Wow. Uh, they've they 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 demo the they always demo the beta versions of of the technology and try to break it they hear me they overhear me because i'm driving the kids to squash practice but i'm on sure. a right on a team call or investor call and after the call they'll be like mom you were super mean on this call like why did you say that so i feel like they've been really part of the process and my hope is that you know i'm i'm a role model especially for my daughter she gets to see her mom you know, be a go-getter and she is a go-getter. So I'm going to take a little bit of credit for that. <laughs> yeah. They, they learn by, they learn by watching. That's for sure. Well, I want to talk about your book. Um, why did you write the book and what's the book about? So the book Girl Decoded um, is um, a scientist's quest to reclaim our humanity by bringing emotional intelligence into technology. It's a memoir, which makes me sound like I'm 80 years old. I'm not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But it, it follows my journey growing up in the Middle East as a nice Egyptian girl and kind of finding my way to becoming um, a tech entrepreneur and CEO. But at the same time, it follows the journey of the technology because it's so intertwined, like how I built it, why I built it, my, my various kind of origin stories and aha moments. 
and, and where we're going with it, right? Like, what does the future look like? What are the applications? What are the ethical implications? And how can we do it right? Um, so I, I, wanted, I wanted the world to know about the technology, but in writing it, I also realized that my story hopefully can bring inspiration to many people around the world. I yeah, hope. apparently it is. Um, so as we, as we move towards wrapping, I'm going to shift gears. I'm going to ask you some questions that are going to feel like, why is he asking me these questions? Just roll with it. What do people often get wrong about you? Uh, people see me as nice and they confuse nice as, with weak. Hmm. That's introspective. I like that. What's on your nightstand? My phone and, and, <laughs> uh, and, and water, I guess. My whoop sometimes if it's not on my wrist. What's something that you do that's hard as shit? It's really, really hard, but it's totally worth it. I honestly think this, this entrepreneurship journey, it's, it is really hard, but uh, I know it's worth it. What are some things that you're currently doing that you don't love? and you really would like to do less of? <laughs> well, eat less chocolate. <laughs> Life is short. Right, right, exactly, right? YOLO. No, on a, on a more serious note, I, I do end up being in a lot of like in the weeds type of meetings. And I'm just like doing a lot of reflection and introspection. And that's not for me. So I, I'm trying to like divert my energy more into these strategic conversations and less of these like, like the meetings where we're in the weeds debating something like, like, like my Nusha. I'm like, guys, you're killing me. Can we just move on? I don't know if you that, have you know, this. I, no, that's amazing. I just watched something with uh, Jeff Bezos. Um, it was a Q&A that he did. Um, I'll see if I can find it and send it to you. And somebody asked him about sleep and how much sleep he gets. And he said, I prioritize sleep because I get uh, I need to make sure I, I get eight hours. He said, so, you know, you could look and say, well, I could get four hours and then, you know, uh, I have four more hours available to me, but the bandwidth is much lower in me making decisions. And he said, you know, the way I look at it is... Other people are responsible for making the bulk of the decisions. He said, but if I can make two, three, a maximum four decisions a day, that's all I need to do. That's it. He said, I, he said, I actually think two, three, four decisions a week would actually be better. That made me think of when you were talking about being in the weeds. Like you can't, you, you burn a lot of mental calories when you're in the weeds like that. So I, I, I'm with you. Totally. I, I love, love that. that. What's one rule that you have for yourself that you'll never break? I have a very clear set of like core values around empathy, compassion, learning, and it, like just integrity. And I, 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 I don't break those. Mm -hmm. They've informed my decision-making as a human, as a parent, and definitely as a business leader. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Oh, the Maldives. The Maldives, why? <laughs> why? Well, I don't know of a whole month, but I, I love the water. It just brings me zen and I need zen. Yeah, one of those <laughs> and, overwater bungalow things, yeah? Exactly, right? Like just blue water, blue sky. Mm -hmm. Got it. And yeah. Do you collect anything or have you ever collected anything? Uh, we, well, as a family, we collect snow globes. Uh, oh. we, yeah. So everywhere we go, we try to get a snow globe. We have a whole snow globe collection. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? Oh, um, 
It's funny. I've been thinking a lot about the times where I've, I've, I've felt like truly safe and truly who I am. Mm-hmm. And I wish more people kind of, kind of dove into that. Um, cause I, I, I have a, like, probably like you, I have a public persona that is pretty aligned with who I truly am, but there are, but, but there's not a lot of in, instances where I totally let my guard down. And I've just been thinking a lot about that and, mm-hmm. and, and kind of, yeah, we're in a we're in a very interesting place right now where um certainly with social media everybody sees the images that we choose. And you know, Tony Robbins says um the strongest need in the human condition, I'm paraphrasing, but the strongest need in the human condition is our desire to remain consistent with our identity. And when we put forth an identity, we'll fight tooth and nail to say, you know, we're a democrat, we're a republican, we're a mom, we're a dad. You know, we really like and so, but we're, we're not just that, we're lots of things. So I love that. What's one thing that you want to get better at? This, it's this ability, I won't use the word balance, but almost it's this ability to chill. Like, just like, just be present, be in the moment, have faith that it'll all work out. Just enjoy, enjoy the journey. It's enjoy so hard. Journey. Isn't it so hard? Hard. Why is that so freaking hard to just be, like, it seems like we should be able to just enjoy it, but our brain is just always going. Yeah. Um, what book have you reread the most? Oh, reread the most? The Namesake. I must mm. have read this book. Like, have you read it? No, never even heard of it. So it follows this young man who grew up in India um, and came to MIT Mm-hmm. Um, and, and basically made America his, his home. And then his son grows up with this, like he first rejects his identity as, as being Indian, but, but then over time he re- reconciles, you know, he re- reconciles his different identities, right? Which is exactly what you're saying. We're not one thing. We're a lot of things. And how do you make all of these different things live in harmony together? It's a beautiful book. Awesome. If you had to, two more questions, if you had to d- give a uh, TED talk, on nothing that you're known for, no, not AI, none of the stuff that we've been talking about. And it could be on anything that you want or have an interest in. Two random thoughts came in my mind. First is memory. I'm fascinated by how our memory works. Um, and, and I guess what makes things memorable? Like what makes things memorable? And then the other one is the power of Zumba. I don't know what, why that came to mind, um, but that, that, that could be fun. What is it, and I have to ask, what is it about Zumba that floats your boat? Oh my God, it's, it's this, it's the joy that comes out of it. It's, 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 obviously it's an exercise, so there's that, but, but, but the ability to be together with uh, often women, I, I do it with women, and it's just like a powerhouse of these women and it's joyful, it's kind of cool. Maybe I will do a talk about this. <laughs> I think it's I think it's really interesting. I'm going to send you a link. A friend of mine is a uh, a Zumba teacher, but she travels literally internationally training Zumba instructors. Like it's like to watch her. Oh my god, it's beautiful. I gotta send it. Yeah, it's it's absolutely I beautiful. Say, um, my plan B, if like everything else falls apart, is to pivot and just become a Zumba instructor. Why not? <laughs> okay, last question. Let's change things up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? Oh, well, what what TED talk would you give? Oh, nobody's ever asked me that one. Um, well, this is weird, but I de-stress by mixing house music on DJ equipments. 
I love, I was in Ibiza uh, one year and I saw um, these DJs that were mixing music that was so incredible. And I talked to one of them and he explained to me that, you know, there are four tracks that I'm playing simultaneously. And I pulled the bass out of this one, the treble out of that one, the blah, 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 blah. And what you're hearing is actually four songs playing on top of each other. And I was like, how the hell? And I tried to do that. And it sounded like a six-year-old, you know, playing a tuba. It was horrible. And I became fascinated with uh, how you do that because it requires a skill set um, from a technology standpoint, but it also requires you to be present to hear the bass in one coming in and the treble in the other one coming in. <laughs> and then I became fascinated um, so much so that I hired a, a DJ in a local club a few years ago to teach me how to do it better. And then he said, dude, you're good. You should actually play in the nightclub. And I'm like, no, I don't want it. And he's like, you know, give it a shot. So I wound up playing in the nightclub and then I wound up touring. And it wound up being this crazy midlife crisis where I was like, you know, uh, Paris Hilton DJing around the, it was weird. Um, and then it got too hard when uh, we had Sophia, our daughter, cause I was coming home at four o'clock in the morning, you know, to 20 year olds fist pumping on ecstasy. Uh, and it was just weird. Um, <laughs> so I had to stop and, uh, but I missed it. And so I got, more equipment when we moved to LA. And so as a, you know, as a weekly ritual, as a sort of like a, a de-stress thing, I, I go into the garage and I DJ uh, just for myself. Amazing. And I think that there's a, that, that there's a lot that people, it forces you to be fully present because you can't be like on your iPhone while you're, while you're mixing and it forces you to make something that's beautiful. So I would do a TED talk on that. That is awesome. Well, Rana, this has been better than I thought it was going to be. Thank you so much for all of this. We will link everything up in the uh, in the show notes. Do you have a final word, suggestion, or an ask for the people that are listening? Uh, for people who are listening, if you end up reading my book and it resonates with you, uh, please reach back out and share um, share these moments of connections. It's been the best thing about writing a book. I love it. Thank you again. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. Oh,